morning's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, which can be found on page 1111 in the Bibles in front of you. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They, th they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I'm Nathan, by the way, if we haven't met. Uh, man, I, I've loved been at every service today, and I've loved the fact that we've been able to sing again after 100 plus days or whatever it is, and... I think we take the cake for the loudest singers. I actually, I think that's the case. So well done, Night Church. Keep it up. Uh, and I've got to say, I've really missed Pete Welling's baritone. So I'm glad that's back. It's back. Let's pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here 
again tonight, gathering together as your people and the joy that it's been to be able to lift our voices in praise of you once more. As we turn our attention now, Lord, to your word, a word that you have given us for our instruction and our encouragement, Lord, we pray that uh, both those things will be happening for us now tonight. Amen. Amen. I uh, heard a story recently about a mission trip and a team that were intent on uh, trying to share the gospel. It's a little bit like a, like a beach mission, if you've ever been on one or you're familiar with how those kind of operate. The team got together and they were trying to reach a particular area and they decided that they wanted to pick a place, a public place, where they would go and preach the gospel. Right? Pretty normal thing to do on a, on a mission. And uh, they picked a, like a shopping center, a shopping square uh, as the location. And picture something like... Um, at the mall, if you know where that, that's, that outdoor stage is, kind of in the, the food court area. So it's like very public, kind of a thoroughfare, a lot of people moving through, a lot of people in there doing stuff. And they, they, they picked Tim as the young, enthusiastic kind of member of the team to be the one to preach, to prepare, you know, a 10-minute message and to get ready to kind of jump up and give it at the right time. And Tim was, was happy to do it, but he was a little bit dubious, right? Like... How's this going to work in the middle of a busy shopping center? You see, the team had thought about this. They were planning to, they were going to set up the worship band. The band would play. The team would get up. They'd sing some songs. It'd be loud. It'd be noisy. It'd catch people's attention as they're kind of pushing the, their trolley of groceries past. They would stop. As people were eating their Big Macs in the food court, they would stop and they'd pay attention. And when the crowd was, was big enough... Then Tim would come forth and preach the gospel. So the team set up, the band started playing, the team started singing, no one paid attention. People with the trolleys just walked on past, heads down, don't make eye contact, don't stop. People kept chomping on their Big Macs, paying no attention at all. And the team was a little bit flustered at this point, right? Like, Tim's going, great, I don't have to preach. <laughs> and then all of a sudden... One of the veterans of the team, Tony, he strode off the stage over to a garbage bin, pulled out the bag of rubbish, tied a knot in the top. Apologize if you're online and you don't quite see this. I don't often use props in my sermons, all right? So this is like a big deal. I'm going to see if I can hit the projector because you see what Tony did was throw this bag of rubbish in the middle of the shopping center higher and higher and higher, over and over again. And the team's looking at each other going, is Tony okay? Is this the Holy Spirit? Like, what's going on? And pretty soon, Tony just doing it over and over again. Pretty soon, it's not just the team that's stopping watching this man and his flying rubbish, but other people start to pay attention and go, well, yeah, what's, what's going on here? And bit by bit, you know, the people with their trolleys have stopped People hoeing into their Maccas, you know, mid, mid bite of Big Mac, just frozen, staring at Tony in the middle of this square, just chucking his rubbish. And all of a sudden, he threw, throws it up in the air, turns to the team and says, Now, Tim, now! And Tim comes out and starts preaching his 10-minute gospel sermon, and the crowd evaporate as quickly as that appeared. <laughs> Good job, Tony. Nice try. I wonder, have you ever felt like that when it comes to trying to share the gospel? 
I'm not talking, you know, at Ringham Mall, but with people that you know, are they actually going to listen to what I have to say? And, and if they do listen, what are they going to think about it? You ever asked those kind of questions or felt that kind of tension before? You see, I really like that story with Tony and the, the flying garbage because of, of the way it really captures the difficulty that we face as we try to speak the truth of the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. Now, these days, everyone's encouraged to embrace their own truth, aren't they? So people don't want to be told what to believe. They want to go and discover it themselves. Where does the gospel fit into that? How do we fit the gospel into that? Today, we live in an age where personal experience is, is worth far more than hard evidence. An age where our feelings get to determine the facts. How do we speak the gospel into that space? And when we do, how can we expect people are even going to listen? You know, that tension is actually not new. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul faces a very similar challenge in our passage tonight in Acts chapter 17. This section of Acts that we've been walking through together, as Stu said, it's the story of the gospel as the gospel makes its way out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And the Apostle Paul, of course, is one of the linchpins of this mission. And as we come to him again tonight, he is partway through the second of three missionary trips that he takes. This trip is quite a bit longer than his first. You might remember the first one a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we spent our time in the, the city of Philippi with Paul, Silas and Timothy. And the men get beaten and imprisoned and they're opposed. And yet, we see some pretty remarkable conversion stories taking place in that city, didn't we? As you can see on the map... From Philippi at the top, Paul and his crew kind of make their way down the coast through the cities of Thessalonica and then Berea. Both of those towns are pretty hostile places for Paul and his mates. And so in the end, actually, Paul is forced to flee and he jumps down round to Athens on his own. So he rocks up in Athens without his mates and he's kind of there waiting for them to catch up. <laughs> out of all the strange and foreign places our poor Bible readers have had to kind of fumble their way through the last few weeks, and they've done a fantastic job. Athens, that's an easy one, right? Athens is probably the most familiar place that we've heard so far. It's a city of tremendous antiquity. It gets referred to as the cradle of democracy. It's a place renowned for its contributions to classical art and literature and drama and philosophy. It was this kind of unrivaled hotbed of culture in the ancient world. Highly significant place. Just to give you a sense of that, here's a, here's a famous fresco painted in the early 1500s by the Renaissance artist Raphael. Now, if you ever had the opportunity to go to the Vatican, you might have seen it because that's where it is. And it's called the School of Athens. It's a bit of a one-stop shop of classical philosophy. You've got guys like Pythagoras and Archimedes and Socrates. And then there at the very center are the two heavyweights of them all, Plato and his student Aristotle. It's a pretty formidable collection of people, right? And they weren't all natives of Athens, but a third of them were. And it really speaks, I think, to the reputation of this place, right? And the, the kind of 
philosophical shadow that must have been cast over the city. This is the space that Paul steps into as he arrives on the shores of Athens. And as usual, as has been his practice, he he begins his time in a new place by first going to the synagogue, speaking to the Jews. Pretty soon, though, he moves his message out into the agora, the marketplace, the hustle and bustle of everyday life. And this is going to be the place, really, where he connects in with everyday Athenians. Now, he doesn't try singing worship songs or, you know, pick up a bag of garbage and toss it around. What he does do, though, is he speaks about Jesus and resurrection. We don't know how long he was there at it, but eventually some philosophers hear what he's preaching and they they get a little bit confused. Take a look at verse 18. They're a little bit rude. What is this babbler trying to say? And then he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. You see, they hear him talking about a god called Jesus and another god, they think, called Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. They're confused. They've never heard of these gods before, and so they decide, hey, this this guy's going to explain himself to us. So they invite Paul to come before the Athenian council at a place called the Areopagus. Here's what the Areopagus looks like today. It's just a kind of pile of rocks. It's a hilltop sitting high above the noise and the bustle of the city. And it was a highly significant place in Athens because this is the place where ideas were presented, where they were debated, and where they were weighed up. Here in Athens, the cultural capital of the classical world, before the smartest, most influential people in this city, Paul gets what's got to be the greatest evangelistic opportunity so far, right? An amazing opportunity. Incredible. I I don't know how Paul would have been feeling at this point. Like, I'm sure he's aware of just the gravity of the moment. I don't know how you would have been feeling standing up in front of all those smart and learned people. But it doesn't seem to faze him, does it? Because what he goes on to stand and deliver is nothing short of brilliant It's brilliant, so brilliant in fact, that to this day, you can see on the second photo up there, on that plaque, that's actually Paul's speech that has been preserved word for word in Greek, right up there at the Areopagus. So, what does he say? Well, basically, Paul does a takedown of pagan idolatry. But the beauty of it is that it doesn't feel like it's a takedown. You see, they invited him to speak, and instead, he invites them to meet the one true God, the one, he says, they've actually been looking for all along. It's brilliant. And there are so many striking things you could pull out and work through in a speech like this. I'm just going to pull out a couple for us tonight. The first one is, it's really interesting how gently Paul speaks. For those paying attention at the start of the Bible reading, that actually might come as a surprise. Take a look at verse 16, if you've got your Bibles still open in front of you. When he first arrives, the first thing we're told by Luke is that he's greatly distressed. And he's greatly distressed because the city was full of idols. I mean, this is Athens, right? Like, it would have been bursting at the seams with religious cults from all across the known world. 
A city submerged in its idols was one way that a, that a commentator put it this week. I really like that. Submerged in its idols. And Luke tells us that on seeing this, Paul gets really upset. And the word that he uses, distressed, greatly distressed, it, it, it's actually more than distressed. It's kind of angry, incensed, disturbed, like in his inner being. It's so funny though, because when he gets up to address the Areopagus, there's no hint of hostility to what he's saying, is there? There's no derision in his tone, as far as we can tell. It's, it's measured, it's thoughtful, it's generous, it's wise, and he actually doesn't let his anger dictate his approach, which I think is really interesting. Secondly, Paul speaks their language. All right, this is not a Jewish audience that he's speaking to. It's about as far from a Jewish audience that you could possibly get. And you actually see that reflected in the way that he speaks, in the language that he chooses to use. He sounds very different here to when he's addressing a synagogue of Jews. You can actually see how different it is by just comparing this speech with, if you want to do, th do that this week, go and have a look at chapter 13 when he's in Pisidian Antioch. We've actually got a really long speech that he gives to the synagogue there. And you compare these two things, right? When he's speaking in the synagogue, he's recounting uh, Israel's history. He's quoting from Isaiah and Habakkuk and, and the Psalms. He's talking about the Messiah. And yet when he comes to Athens, there's none of that. In fact, the only direct quotes that he drops into this speech are from Greek philosophers like Epimenides and Aratus. You know those guys, right? <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> but they would have. Those listening to him that day would have definitely understood and known who he was quoting. You know, even though he doesn't quote scriptures, everything Paul says has the scriptures as its backbone, right? Every single word that he says comes from the scriptures. It's the same message, but it's sounding a little different because he's coming at it from a different angle. And I reckon there's a helpful reminder there for us. You know, even though there is only one gospel, there's not one way of telling it. There's not one way of sharing it. And when we have different audiences, in fact, it's not going to be one size fits all. So, Paul speaks gently. He speaks their language. Thirdly, he speaks to build bridges. So interesting, right? He could have come in guns blazing against all the detestable idols that he'd seen in the city, right? He was incensed when he saw them. So he could have done that. Instead, he actually chooses to use those idols to build a bridge, to make a connection with his, his audience. He talks of the altar to the unknown God. And he says, you know what? There actually is a God worthy of, of your worship, whom you don't know, who's unknown to you. Let me introduce him to you. He is not just one amongst many, but he is in fact the creator of all things. And he's a God who can't be contained, can't be restrained in a temple or an idol. And he's a God who doesn't need us to offer him anything because he is the one who gives everything. You see that? Temples, idols, sacrifices, the pagan trifecta. And Paul is undermining each of those things in his speech, but it's in a, 
it's in an indirect kind of way. He's like, you guys are clearly searching for something. And I look around and I can see you haven't quite found it yet. But I can tell you about the one you've actually been searching for. He engages them with the gospel by looking around at their world and revealing to them how the one true God makes sense of it all. He doesn't even need to throw a, gar- a, 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 a bag of rubbish in order to do that. <laughs> and you know, we can too. We can too. Because what was true for the city of Athens back then remains true for every city in our world today. Whether they realize it or not, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer that the world is looking for. It's the only answer that truly makes sense of this place and of us. You do believe that, don't you? Don't you? <laughs> I hope you do. We, that's what we believe. But, but sometimes I think we get worried. And we really do wonder, you know, how such an ancient book with some, some really strange things in it, how it can still be relevant today. And, and we, we sense the hostility sometimes out there, at the gospel, at Christianity or whatever, and we, I, I think it does make us doubt sometimes. Maybe this is, this is not a message for everyone. I think maybe we actually just need to come at things from some different angles. And maybe like Paul, we need to work hard at trying to s- speak to build bridges. So, you know, instead of chucking rubbish, like Tony, we could try looking at... pleasure. I mean, this is a good place to do that, isn't it? Manly. Like, we are one of the most pleasure-seeking suburbs in one of the most pleasure-seeking countries in the entire world. (laughs) Manly enjoys itself so much, they have to go and fence off the office. Too much enjoyment. The sun, the sand, the surf, the shopping, the sipping, This is the place for people with expendable cash and expendable time. It's the place, isn't it? Just last night, I uh, I took the family to Anita's Gelato, which literally just opened yesterday, right next door. And uh, we're sitting there eating our gelato, and uh, Archie, our three-year-old, has just got the cone right in his face, and it's like all over him. And uh, we struck up conversation with the owner, who found out that I I worked here. And so we, we had a nice conversation. And at one point, she looked over at Archie, who's just covered in in ice cream, and she said, we sell happiness. And I looked at him, and I was like, you do. You absolutely do. And I looked at her, and I said, I pointed at St. Matt's, and I said, so do we. And right there, she became Christian. (laughs) Not really. That would be spectacular. (laughs) But what an opportunity we have to introduce manly to the God of pleasure. What an opportunity. I mean, that's what Paul does when he's preaching to a crowd of Gentiles in the city of Lystra. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He said this, God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food to fill and fills your hearts with joy. Get a load of that last line. He fills your hearts with joy. That's nuts, right? God's the one responsible for our enjoyment. 
You know, our culture accuses God of being a killjoy. Paul says the reality is that he's the only reason we have joy. And he actually takes pleasure in our pleasure, doesn't he? And when he walked the earth, you know, he, he turned water into wine. And he, and he spoke about the coming kingdom as if it was this vast wedding banquet. And he fed thousands of people with so much food that they didn't know what to do with the leftovers. That's our God. And friends, our culture is searching for satisfaction through pleasure. They want to be filled until they're full with the best things that life has to offer. But that's a search that can only reach its true end in coming to know the author of pleasure, the one who fills hearts with joy. So you could try that angle, or you could go with something like justice. That's an interesting one. I mean, you just have to think over the last couple of years, the, the different movements that have swept the world, right? Whether it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too or climate change, behind all of them lies this deep desire for justice, a calling to account of those who've used their power to oppress and exploit. And, and I mean, deep down, we all, we all long for justice, don't we? Those who abuse power cannot be allowed to get away with it, whether they're governments or corporations or individuals. Yet, the search, the search for lasting justice is a search that's never going to reach a conclusion because there's always going to be new causes to join. There's always going to be new injustices to oppose. But not when it comes to the God of justice, the God who who knows all, who sees all, and as Paul explains, who has fixed a day when all things are going to be brought to account. That will be the day of flawless, lasting justice, where no foul deeds will be missed, no vile acts of abuse will, just, will get swept under the rug. That'll be a day when all wrongs will be made right, you see, the gospel reveals God's commitment to making things right, once and for all. Then there's the topic of suffering. That's a big one, especially at the moment. It's a big one. Because, you know, our, in, our, in our world these days, suffering is considered the highest form of evil. Just this week, the state parliament has again begun debating the assisted dying bill. And those who support it believe that suffering is worse than even death itself. So suffering is a live issue. And, you know, it's even held up as the greatest, strongest argument against God's existence. I'm sure you're familiar with this, right? Like, how can God be loving and powerful when we've got all this suffering in the world? But friends, the problem of suffering is actually no problem for our gospel. It's actually an amazing opportunity. You think about it like this. For a world, for a world that seeks to avoid suffering at all costs, what are they going to make of a God who, is, who, who willingly walks the other way? Who chooses to climb onto the cross, not down from it? Like, how, how profound and confounding is that idea? 
What kind of God willingly chooses to suffer? And why? I came across a quote this week by a former atheist, now turned Christian apologist, Francis Spufford. In his book, Unapologetic, he says this, Some people ask nowadays, what kind of a religion is it that chooses an instrument of torture for its symbol? As if the cross on churches must represent some kind of endorsement. The answer is, one that takes the existence of suffering seriously. Friends, our world takes the existence of suffering seriously. The gospel offers to introduce them to a God who does too. Pleasure, justice, suffering, they're just examples. And there's, there's plenty more where that came from, right? Just different ways of showing how the gospel actually answers the world's deepest questions. But perhaps the most profound of them all is this one, the future. When it comes to the future, we're, we're a fairly pessimistic bunch, if we're honest with ourselves. I mean, you have to think about how many of our worries and our fears are fueled by uncertainties with tomorrow. Whether that's on a, a scale as grand as something like global warming or the pressure to own property in this ridiculous housing market of ours, or that kind of pandemic panic buying that leads to the shelves being empty, whatever it is, right? People worry about tomorrow, don't they? A lot. Everyone's desperate for the assurance that tomorrow's going to be okay, that, that they are going to be okay. We all want futures that are fixed, that are sorted, that are settled. But a secure future is an elusive thing in this world, isn't it? And it's always going to be elusive in a world where death is the guaranteed end, in a world where moth and rust destroy. But the God of the gospel is the God of yesterday, the God of today, the God of tomorrow, the God of forever. And what might be uncertain to us is certain to him. And the gospel actually offers to fix our future to the immovable reality of resurrection. Like there, there, there is just no safer, more secure ground upon which to stand than the promise that death is not the end. That's the kind of hope that our world desperately needs. The certain hope that can only be found in the gospel. And it's actually on this point of resurrection that Paul ends his speech. Now remember the, the philosophers had mistakenly thought that Jesus and resurrection were two separate gods. And so Paul's actually addressed that pretty clearly through, through his speech. That's actually one of the reasons why he attacks it as he does, right? There's only one God. <clears throat> and so it finally dawns on the Athenians that, that this guy is actually advocating for a literal bodily resurrection. And that idea, for most in the audience, they just can't accept that. Because according to most Greek philosophies, the idea of an afterlife, especially a bodily afterlife was just unthinkable. So it's fair to say when, when he comes to the end of his speech, 
the reaction kind of lacks luster. Some, we're told, sneer at the idea of a resurrection. Others are still interested. They want to hear more. And then some of the people, we're told, became followers of Paul. Some. So it's like a handful, probably. Which is great. But it's a far cry from the great number that we hear come to faith in Antioch, or the many who followed them in Pisidian Antioch, or the large number that they won in the city of Derby, and it's certainly a far cry from the thousands and thousands of people who came to faith on the day of Pentecost. It's kind of funny, right, because this is the moment. This is, this is the moment to do it. Like, what a great opportunity. And yet it doesn't happen. What are we to make of that, you know? It's super interesting. I actually take great comfort in the way his time in Athens ends. Because, you know, Paul knocks it out of the park. Like, it's, a, it's an amazing speech. And yet, you've got people just who continue to push their trolleys past him in the shopping center. You keep eating their Big Macs. You know, the Athenians are on to the next new, interesting idea. Because, see, the truth is there's, there's actually no magic words that Paul can say. There's no secret formula he can follow in order to actually bring someone from death to life because that's not his job. Resurrection is a God job. And Paul knows that, which, which I take it is why he doesn't, he doesn't take rejection personally, does he? That's one of the remarkable things we've seen time and time again. You know, they're throwing stones at him in Lystra and he doesn't throw the towel in. He just stands up, dusts himself off, and he moves on to the next city. It's why at the end of that first missionary trip, he reports back to the church in Antioch, and, and, and it says this, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God, that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You see, God has to put the work to work. That's what he'd been doing, using Paul's words, using Paul's witness to open eyes, to unstop ears, and to penetrate hearts. You see, in order for anything to actually happen, God had to put Paul's work to work. Sometimes he did, and it was spectacular. And other times, like in Athens, not so much. And that's okay too. And what I find fascinating, actually, is that even though there's a lackluster reaction right here, we're still talking about it today. And 2,000 years later, that speech is still engraved on the stone there in Athens. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't imagine what Paul was thinking when he was preaching. I don't imagine he thought we'd probably still be talking about it in 2,000 years. And if I knew that this sermon was going to be talked about in 2,000 years' time, I don't know what I'd say. <laughs> But friends, it's actually no different for us today, right? If our world is ever going to listen to us, if your friends and family are ever going to listen to you, it's going to be because God has put your work to work. That's actually why prayer is the most important part of evangelism. We forget that though, but it is. It's got to be the most important part of evangelism because God is so important to evangelism actually being successful, (laughs) 
We're so quick to forget it though, right? Because we think it's all up to me. And I put myself in this category too, right? We work ourselves up and we're like, it's, it's all about this next conversation. And I've got to say the right thing at the right time, in the right way. And if it doesn't come off, then it's ruined and, and that's it. <laughs> Maybe we actually just need to sit with the Athenians and listen to Paul a little bit more, right? In, in verse 25, when he says this, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Friends, he's the Lord of heaven and earth after all. He doesn't need anyone. But in his wisdom and grace, he lets us play our part. And as we do, we shouldn't need to chuck a bag of rubbish in the air because he's given us everything we need right here. Because the gospel really is, really is the answer to our world's deepest questions. Let's pray. Oh God, man, we're so pleased that we still have Paul's speech here in your word for us that we can think about and reflect on and chew over together tonight. Pray, Lord, that you, you might help us to trust you when it comes to sharing the gospel. And know, Lord, that you will be at work in us and through us. Lord, help us to play our part, whatever that might look like. Help us to work hard to connect the gospel to where the world is at. And as we do it, Lord, ever trusting that you will work through our work in your way and in your timing and to your glory. These things we pray, Lord, in your Son's name. Amen.